We've made it to our final morning. Yes. So you all need to smile real fast. And then just don't move, don't move, don't move, don't move, don't move. Music people over here. All right. Cool. Actually, one more. All right, cool. Now, it's really been so amazing uh, being here. Uh, I know I've said it several times, but I'll say it again. Uh, there are a few pastors in this world that I have more respect for than your pastor. Uh, pastor Nam has been a hero of mine and someone that I always wish to emulate. And so uh, it really is humbling uh, to be here uh, to speak for you and to uh, open God's word for you. And I'm just so grateful for Wayne and for Gary. And it's just been such a remarkable weekend for our family. And and uh, it's been such a pleasure meeting so many of you and spending time together and sharing meals. And so we, we, we're walking away with our hearts full and blessed. And, and Winston and praise team, remarkable. It's just been so good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for blessing us and for... Uh, really, in so many ways, ushering us uh, into the presence of God. It's been really, really good. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are as we uh, close off our weekend together. And uh, I trust that it's been profitable for your souls, uh, encouraging to you, and, and maybe even challenging. Uh, a few people came up and just uh, shared how uh, the Lord has been convicting their hearts uh, through these messages. And, and uh, that conviction is good. Uh, but as I usually tell the church in San Diego, conviction is not enough, right? We want to be appliers, we want to be doers of the word, and you have not applied scripture until you have applied scripture, right? And so coming to a firm conclusion of what you ought to do is not going far enough, go and do it, right? And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about a little bit this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, and just for the sake of context, Uh, I'm going to read starting in verse 17 and through our passage that we've been looking at, and this is God's word. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather... He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, 
according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Please pray with me. God, we're so thankful for this weekend. Lord, what a blessing it's been to uh, be together with the saints here at IBC, to share in Christian fellowship and to just really enjoy uh, good fun together. God, we're grateful for the years of ministry that this uh, church has been a part of and for the influence it's been in its community and, and beyond. And we pray, Father, that you would be gracious to continue to bless this ministry and cause it to grow in you. And Father, if in some measure you can use this weekend to contribute to that growth, we give you praise. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which is our food, our drink, the air that we breathe. Father, we thank you, Lord, for revealing your will to us and really revealing yourself to us, that we might know you, to know what you're like and what you require of us. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this time to give us a greater view of who you are, that we would love you more, worship you more deeply, and more faithfully walk in your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got to say, last night was eye-opening to me. I mean, I knew that the army was ferocious, but (laughs) I did not know it was Sujin ferocious, and uh, that that was amazing. I almost became a fan. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. The, <laughs> sorry. the passage that we've been looking at in talking about what the clothing looks like. What does it mean that the truth is in Jesus? And, and what does it mean that this old man has been shed off and the new man has been put on? How helpful is it? That the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, gives us a description and helps us to see in very practical ways what this new life ought to look like. Uh, What kinds of things do we need to shed off from our lives and what kinds of things ought we to put on? And this section of Ephesians, really looking at it, has to do with our sanctification, That God in Christ and by the Holy Spirit is cultivating in us greater godliness and holiness in this whole process of putting off and putting on, you know, learning to develop the the mind of God, to think his thoughts after him, that we might hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves and pursue him with all of our hearts. I know that you probably know that our salvation is oftentimes uh, spoken of you know, in various tenses. The Bible talks about how we have been saved, obviously, right? That we are being saved and that we one day will be saved. And we oftentimes describe this in three categories, that we have been justified, we are being sanctified, and one day in Christ we will be, what? Glorified, right? <clears throat> What you might not understand, and I'm trying not to confuse you here, but all three phases of those of, the, of that salvation in Scripture is also referred to as sanctification. The Bible talks about how we have been sanctified, that we are now being sanctified, and one day we will be sanctified. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, where in his introduction to the book, 
The Apostle Paul writes this, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. He's talking about our initial conversion. When we became Christians, God consecrated us to himself. He set us apart and made us his own, that we are no longer of this world. He has elected us and plucked us out removed us from the sphere of this world and placed us in the sphere of Christ. Uh, Later on in chapter 6 and verse 11, right, kind of leading up to that verse, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And when you read that verse 11, you think, no, Paul, you got the order wrong. Justification comes first and then sanctification. But why does he list sanctification first? Because our sanctification can refer to that moment of conversion when God set us apart to himself and consecrated us to him. But not only have we been sanctified, the Bible also talks about how we are being sanctified. And this is how we normally understand this concept of sanctification, that we are growing in Christ, that we are in the process of being made more holy as God is holy. Romans chapter 6 and verse 19 says this, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Or that monumental passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so, biblically speaking, we can talk about how we have been sanctified, and we can talk about how we are now being sanctified, but the Bible also talks about how one day we will be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that great passage that helps us understand what is to come, you know, uh, the future hope that we have as believers. In verse 23, he prays, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That even though we have been sanctified, set apart unto the Lord, and that we are being sanctified, being made more and more into his image, one day that whole process of sanctification will be made complete. When sin is no more, when we stand in his presence, when we will be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so our salvation can be talked about in those three tenses. That we have been saved, that we are being saved, that we will be saved. It can be talked about as our having been justified and now being sanctified and one day being glorified. And it can also be talked about as us having been sanctified, being sanctified now, and one day that we will be sanctified. Are you still with me? Right? And so when you think about This idea of sanctification, one way to think about our salvation is that the Lord God has set us apart to himself. 
that we are consecrated, much like the, the objects of worship in the Old Testament for the tabernacle and for the temple that were inscribed with the words holy to the Lord and the instructions given that what is holy to the Lord you are not to use for common purposes. It is set apart unto the Lord. And so God gave them a recipe for incense and said, this is holy unto the Lord. You are not to fill your, you know, diffusers and potpourri, you know, with my incense. This is holy unto the Lord. It's consecrated to him. And in the same way as God's people, we are set apart unto him. We are not like everyone else in this world. We have been set apart. And this has implications for us then practically. Because if we are set apart unto him, then our lives entirely should be devoted to him. That right now as believers, we are being made more and more into the image of Christ. And our lives should increasingly reflect the glory of God. It's like what the Apostle Paul speaks about in Philippians chapter 3. If, if there's anything I could do to get more of Christ, that's what I want. God, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, even if it means my suffering, even if it means my death, if it means that I get to be stamped more and more into the image of Christ so that what results is that I have a greater knowledge and understanding of Him, that's what I want more than anything. That is far more valuable than my own health. That's far more valuable than my own comfort. I want to know you. That's our sanctification. I think about the outline of the book of Ephesians as a whole. And you're, I know you're in a Bible teaching church, so you know there's six chapters in the book of Ephesians. And it breaks down very evenly, one through three and four through six. That in the first three chapters, it is in, almost entirely indicative talking about who we are in Christ. In fact, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there's only one command. And even that one command is just to remember who we are in Christ. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, it hinges on that verse. In chapter 4, verse 1, that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And then 4, 5, and 6 is chock full of instructions, helping us to understand how we ought to live in light of who we are. And so the outline of Ephesians serves us well for this weekend because it helps communicate our theme that we do what we do because of what? We are who we are. In this passage, Paul is continuing in his list of examples of what it means to have put off the old self and put on the new. And we see the pattern again. Don't do this, but do this, and let me tell you why. In verse 29, or sorry, 28 is our focus. That he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Remember the last time you mugged someone in the street, right? Remember the last time you broke into someone's house and stole something that wasn't yours? Remember the last time you carjacked somebody? Oh wait, did you guys never do that? So I guess this verse is meaningless for us. Let's close in prayer. And we'll be done. No, of course. Now, there's obviously this, there are going to be aspects to this that maybe you think, I don't struggle with this. Right? If I were to ask you, like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate yourself? 
And I always say that 10 is not Jesus, because if 10 is Jesus, there's no point in having a 10, right? 10 being is generally not a problem for me. One being, man, it's such a problem that I, I would struggle even with my own testimony, right? That I struggle with this so much. And as I think about laying aside falsehood and, and speaking truth, each one of us with his neighbor, and I would ask you, how would you rate yourself in this spectrum of 1 to 10, and maybe we'll get some 8s, and maybe we'll get some 6s, right? But as I talk about, don't steal, I would venture to say that there'd be a good percentage of this room that would say, no, that's a 10. I'm a 10. I'm good, right? Well, let's dive into this and and look at it together because I think it'll be helpful for you. The outline that we've been looking at is four ways. Four ways that the Christian's clothes have changed. And the first uh, time that we looked at this, we looked at verses 25 and 29, giving us the first two points, that we put off falsehood and we put on truth that we put off rotten speech, and we put on edifying speech. Uh, and then we looked at the third point, that we put off sinful anger, and, and we put on peace. And now we're going to close this off with verse 28, uh, the fourth way that the Christian's clothes have changed, that we put off stealing and put on work. That we put off stealing and we put on work. That's going to make a lot more sense as we walk through this. But the command is is very simple. He who steals must steal no longer. The don't do here is very clear. What is it? Don't steal. Don't steal, right? And that makes a lot of sense. And I think all of us would agree with this unless maybe you're a toddler. I was introduced to this list. It's written by an anonymous guy. But this list was introduced to me by Pastor Chris Mueller. And they're toddler's rules of possession. Let me walk through this. Number one, if I want it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it away from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I think it's mine, it's mine. Number nine, if I give it to you and then change my mind, it's mine. And then number ten, once it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what. Right? We, we laugh because we have an association. We have a guilt right, by association. We, we are probably more like these toddlers than we like to admit. And so let's, let's, let's walk through this, because obviously, as believers, we should not, what? We should not steal. It's the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. And so you can't get any clearer than that. If something belongs to someone, and it's theirs, and it's not yours, it's not right for you to take it from them. And so, yeah, maybe you don't mug people on the streets. Maybe you don't, you know, break into homes and take things. And if you do, turn yourself in. Shame on you, right? Uh, Maybe you're not pickpocketing people on the streets. But I think about passages like Proverbs 10, verse 2, that says, Ill-gotten gains do not profit. But righteousness delivers from death. Do you gain in any way by dishonest means? Why does the Apostle Paul address this issue? It's because much like today, in that day, 
Employees sometimes stole from their bosses. Business owners sometimes stole from their customers. Neighbors stole uh, from each other. And this is still an issue today. Taking things that aren't yours. I remember, you know, some of my life in Chicago, I shared my testimony uh, on Friday night. And, uh, you know, I have some vivid memories. I remember very vividly when my grandfather died, even though I was a very young kid. And I remember the funeral, and I remember the casket, and I remember seeing him there. And my mom is astounded that I remember these details, but it made such an impression on me. I remember my grandmother, as we were standing by the casket, she was kind of rubbing my hair and, and trying to comfort me, even though I was just confused about what was going on. I remember that there was an adjacent room with a vending machine, and during the service, I went to my parents for some change. Like, I just remember all these little details about what happened there. And I remember the pastor coming to me and taking me down to the furnace and opening it up and scaring the life out of me, right? Uh, But one other thing that I remember was the first time I shoplifted. And I didn't know what shoplifting was. Uh, My older cousins had taken us to the store. I guess this is old enough that I could be out with my cousins without my parents. Remember those days, right? Uh, And we went to the store, and I just noticed all my cousins stuffing their pockets full of candy. And I thought, this is great. And so I started stuffing my pockets full of candy, and we made it back home. And then I looked at my parents and said, look at all this free candy we got. (laughs) And they made us go back to the store and return it all. Taking things that aren't yours, shoplifting, theft, is obviously a sin. But even things that maybe seem a little bit more innocuous, like taking office supplies from work, that you know don't belong to you, and know that, you know, it's so easy to justify because it's such a small little thing. Uh, I remember catching some families at the church, pilfering the church kitchen for a private party, grabbing plates and forks and napkins from the church. God will strike you dead, right? I mean, just, man, how dare you? What about cheating on your taxes? And we, 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 we get sometimes, you know, as pastors, we have to report honorariums and things, checks that are handed under the table. And we're, we're, we need to be men of honor to report those things and pay the appropriate taxes. And, and, and it, some of the laws stink. You know, they do. Like, it, it, I didn't know this, but I, I found out that if you come down to San Diego and help us with child care for our kids, did you know there's a limit to how much we can give you as a gift? And that if we break that rule, then all of a sudden, like, minimum wage laws come into effect and, you know, all sorts of, you know, uh, different things. Workers comp and it, it gets all, all crazy and confused. And so we're like, sorry, we can't give you more, but this is what we're, we're offering you. Lying about your hours at work. You know, when I was in college, we worked in a, a kitchen. That's why I like to cook. I was at UCSD Catering. That was a fun experience. It was me and a bunch of philosophy majors. And uh, so we would sit around the prep table and just, you know, chop vegetables and fruits and stuff. And every once in a while, they'd be like, so Patrick, what's the Christian worldview on this? And well, let me tell you, right? And I remember at the end of a long shift, like if we did a wedding or if we did like a big party, we knew that, you know, our paycheck was 15-minute increments. And if we just waited past the midpoint of that 15-minute mark, then we would get paid for that 15 minutes. Whereas if we, if we clocked out between minute one and like seven, that's math, right? Uh, then, then we wouldn't get paid for that 15 minutes. And so we would just linger, just linger and wait for that clock to come around until we get to that next little pay period. You know, 
And, and you kind of giggle, but that's kind of how we are. We will sell our integrity for so little. For so little. Like if we got the wrong change at the grocery store. You know, some of us would sell our integrity for a couple bucks. We are not to steal. And in some ways, this is related to what we had talked about previously, because at the heart of it is a selfishness and a pride. Anger says, I don't what, I don't have what I want, and so I am going to get upset. Stealing says, I don't have what I want, and so I'm just going to take what I want. And just like with anger, stealing can also be a sin that is very easy to justify in your heart. Because we can say things like, I'm just taking property. It's not like I'm injuring a life, right? I'm not, I'm not really hurting anyone, am I? It's just property. Or they have so much and I have so little. What's the big deal? Or sometimes we have that like, I mean, all of us sympathize with Robin Hood, right? Isn't it okay to steal from the rich in order to give to the poor? Don't the ends justify the means? I remember one time I was working in a a computer company, and uh, this is right before seminary, and we had the opportunity to build our own machines. And the guys asked me, what software do you want on your computer? And we'll just load it up. And I said, well, that's fine, but I'm going to pay for it. And, And their justification was these huge corporations... They only care about other corporations stealing their software. You as an individual user, they don't care about losing that 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever it is. It's such a small, it's a drop in the bucket in their profit. But I insisted, no, I'm going to pay for all of it. As Christians, we don't take what's not ours. We don't illegally pirate music or movies. We We don't steal things. The world would call a compulsion to steal what? Kleptomania. You know, they turn it into a disease, but our urge to steal is not a disease. It's a heart issue that stems from our fallenness. We steal because of our hearts. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts. False witness, slanders, these are the things which defile the man. And so this verse is about the transformation that we have in Christ, that I'm no longer identified with my fallenness in Adam. That old man is dead and gone. I'm a new man now. I'm identified by the victory that I have in Christ. Because I'm not what I once was, I shouldn't live like my old self. I'm called to put off that sinful behavior and to pursue righteousness and to put on godly behavior. Maybe one of the most notorious swindlers in the Bible was a wee little man, right? Named Zacchaeus from the area of Jericho. And when he encountered Jesus, he repented. In Luke chapter 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. I mean, what would cause a person who had a lucrative position, 
a chance to swindle all sorts of people out of money. What gets a person like that to repent in such a radical way? To go above and beyond what the obligation would be. He doesn't just say, I'll restore what I've taken. I'll give four times as much. What brings a heart to that conclusion? And maybe the clue is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Did you trust this? Zacchaeus trusted that what Jesus had to offer him was far greater and far more valuable than any of this world's riches. Anything that this world could possibly provide, anything that he could possibly steal, what he could have in Jesus is worth far more. So that he was readily just willing to let go of all of it for the chance to have that time with Jesus. Perhaps you don't have trouble taking other people's stuff But consider still that there's an underlying heart idolatry here. It's that 1 Timothy 6.10 idolatry, that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Because you don't have to be poor in, in order to covet. It's not just poor people that have greed. Oh, sorry, rich people that have greed. You can be rich and greedy, you can be poor and you can covet. Covetousness and greed affect both the rich and the poor alike. The author of Hebrews talks about this, talking about how to instruct rich people in the church. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Because the one who covets, the one who is greedy, and the one who steals, lacks faith in the Lord's presence and the Lord's provision. Do you trust that the Lord can give you all that you need? Do you trust, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you? Because when we fail to trust God, that's when we are tempted to take things into our own hands. It's even the man who is identified as the pinnacle of faith. Abraham and Sarah, when they're given the promise of a son and the Lord delays... They fall into the temptation and take things into their own hands. And Sarah gives Abraham her servant. I mean, especially as believers, we ought to have this faith. We ought not to steal because the Lord is our Lord. Because he is our God and because he's our father. And if he is our father, we ought to see a family resemblance. But not only that, we trust that we are never alone, that we are constantly in the presence of God, and that His eye is always upon us. Listen, if you are walking in righteousness, that is a statement of utter comfort. 
God is always with me. But if you are walking in sin, that is your greatest threat. That all sins are open and laid bare before him. Every sin that you commit is as though you are standing right there before his throne, committing it in his sight. And not only is he our Lord, and not only is, are we in his presence, but we also trust in his provision. We trust in his provision. We're not to steal. We're not to take what is not ours. And again, this is a principle that I think all of us would agree with. So the don't there is pretty straightforward. Let the one who steals, steal no longer. And instead, and here's kind of the twist, right? Because if I were, again, play the opposites game with you, and I said the opposite of hot is what? Coal, right? And the opposite of light is what? Dark. Some people say heavy. That's okay, right? And if I were to say the opposite of take is what? Give. That's what you would expect. What you would expect the Apostle Paul to say is let him who steals, steal no longer. Instead, let him give. That's the opposite. But he doesn't say that. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer. And instead, let him work. He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. And then here's the reason why. So that, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. But before he gets to the give, he tells us what the opposite of stealing is. It's work. It's work. The Greek word here, kopiao, laborious toil, that we are to work hard. We're going to get to the so that, but this is what makes the so that so so hard, right? It's one thing if I have some windfall. It's one thing if I just gain some inheritance or there's just this huge amount of money that falls in my lap and it's one thing to share that with others. It's another thing when you're working with your hands and you're earning your pay and you're bringing in that paycheck and you're thinking in your own heart, this is what I have earned. This is what I have deserved. This is my just wages. to give away. But God's expectation, before getting ahead of myself, God's expectation is that his people would work. To work with their own hands. I mean, I get it. I was shocked at this revelation. Because as a young man starting to enter into the work field, I didn't enter into ministry immediately. I worked at a computer store and in a restaurant and And I'll tell you, there are times when you wake up for work and it feels like this must necessarily be a result of the fall, right? You wake up in the morning and you think, this has got to be the curse. This has got to be the curse. And, And while laborious toil, right, thorns and thistles and sweat of your brow is the result of the curse, work in and of itself was always part of God's plan. And purpose. He placed Adam and Eve in the garden to toil the, till the ground before the fall. 
He gave responsibilities to man before the fall. And in fact, Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3 says this, By the seventh day, God completed what? His work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. We worship a God who works. And perhaps even in just some small measure, it is part of what it means to bear his image when we go to work. This is his plan and his purpose for us and that whatever you do, you can trust that God is the one who sovereignly placed you where you are. We talked about this in terms of our sanctification, that if you are a teacher, you're not just a teacher. You are a Christian teacher. You're a teacher in Christ. If you're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever you do, you're not just these things on your own. You are these things in Christ. Again, it's so easy for us to get this mentality that when I work, these are simply just the things that I do for myself. And it's my career, it's my pursuit, it's my ambition, it's my retirement, it's my income, it's my checkbook, it's my savings, it's all mine. But what do you have that hasn't been given to you? The strength that you have to be able to work is God's grace gift to you. The job that you have is God's grace gift to you. You don't believe me. You can ask the people that we prayed for down in San Diego that at times were unemployed for years. Searching after job, after job, after job, and being rejected after again and again and again. It is the grace of God that you have the work that you do. It's the grace of God that you're able to provide for your family and put food on the table and put a roof over your head. And it goes even so far beyond that. We get to spend on luxuries. We get to spend on vacations and remodeling and and all these things that arguably we don't need. I oftentimes warn the church about that. If you've ever been on missions, you understand. When you go down to Argentina and you find four families living in a two-bedroom shack that they put together with, you know, concrete blocks and and a tin roof that they nailed together, it really gets you to think twice about what you really need. That's an ongoing joke with my wife, right? Uh, I remember one time talking with her and telling her, honey, I think we need a new TV. And she's like, you need it? (laughs) Who made you the Holy Spirit? It is God's plan for us. I remember what the Apostle Paul said. If the one does not want to work, then he also will not what? Eat. We are to work with our hands. And kopiao is not an easy word for work. It's laborious, toil. Laborious, toil. We work with our hands. And that's what makes this last part so hard. It's not just don't steal and instead work laboriously. But then the so that, the reason, is so that you'll have something to give to the one who has need. We see this progression. Work, earn, give. Work, earn, give. Randy Alcorn wrote a, a wonderful little book called The Treasure Principle. And it's a great book for like young people. But if you're an adult, you put on your big adult pants, you read the big version. Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Uh, written by Randy Alcorn. And I don't agree with everything in the book. 
But man, he asks some provocative questions. He asks questions like this. Why do we assume when we get a pay raise that God provided that pay raise that we might increase our standard of living? Why do we automatically assume that? Why don't we assume that God gave us that pay raise in order for us to give it away? Man, it gets you to think. It gets you to think, and it just challenges you. Because again, when we work with our own hands and we bring in that paycheck, we get a sense in our own hearts that we are entitled to spend this on our own pleasures. And it's not necessarily wrong to spend. I'm not saying it's wrong to earn. It's not wrong necessarily to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have. It's not wrong to enjoy. In so many ways, that is one of the themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. That while you're young and while you have, enjoy it. Don't live for it, right? If you live for those things, it's vanity, it's chasing after the wind, it's emptiness. But Solomon oftentimes tells his son, while you're young, while you're not like me, okay? I mean, young people enjoy it. Enjoy life while you have strength in your legs and while you have the ability to run a mile and not keel over and die, you know, enjoy life. Because I hate to tell you this, one day you're going to look like me. (laughs) And things are going to just start aching and you're going to sit down and you don't mean to do it, but you grunt. (laughs) It just happens. When we earn and when we earn and when we earn, we just get this mentality that it must be for me. But Paul says, let him work with his own hands so that he'll have something to give to the one who has need. Jesus taught this principle in Luke 14. Verses 12 through 14, he went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner and do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they don't have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the principle of Proverbs 19.17, that one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and it's the Lord who will repay him for his good deed. I mean, it's not just what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. It's am I willing to give generously? Am I willing to give in my hospitality? And I got to commend you. This church has been incredibly hospitable to our family. This retreat has been over the top a blessing for us. It's felt so much just like a vacation at a, I mean, this is a nice place to be. And do we trust that when we give these things away freely, joyously, not grudgingly, not just out of a sense of duty or obligation, but worshipfully, keeping in mind that there is a God who sees what is done in secret and will repay the one in secret, knowing that if we lend to the poor man, really we're lending to the Lord. When we give to the poor man, we're lending to the Lord, and the Lord will one day repay. Do we long for the heavenly treasure that is ours at an earthly expense? 
Do we trust in this? And the Apostle Paul is not teaching something that he himself did not model. In Acts chapter 20, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And the Apostle Paul knew what it meant to kopia'o, right? He knew what it meant to laboriously toil. And everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so this is more than just a principle about money. There's a principle about trust. There's grace when we earn. And with what we earn, there comes a stewardship. Do we trust that everything that we have ultimately is the Lord's? When I was in seminary, my roommate got into a a car accident. There was a car, he was at a red light, and a car didn't see the light and just plowed right into the back of his car. And praise God, he was okay. But his first response, I thought was kind of funny. He looked up at heaven, and he just started laughing. And he said, God, this was a perfectly fine car. Why did you go and ruin your car? And I love that mentality. It was just this mentality that everything I have is the Lord's. Folks, if you have a house, it is not your house. Ultimately, it's the Lord's. And I hate to say this, it's his carpet too. And it's his furniture. And all that food in the fridge is his. All of it is given to us as a stewardship. So that we can be generous. So that we can be hospitable. So we can open our doors. And even give sacrificially. Trusting that it's the Lord who repays. Trusting that it's the Lord who provides, that He is our good. Do I trust that the Lord is going to provide for me in the same way that I'm providing for that person in need? Do I trust that He can provide for me? And again, the danger as we walk through this passage is that we can look at it and think, ah, these are just principles for being a better person. If I just start telling the truth, If I just work on my anger a little bit, if I stop gossiping, if I start giving to the poor, then certainly the Lord will be pleased with me. But this is not a self-improvement project. This is not just some behavioral modification. This is not a checklist that you got to go through in order to get to heaven. We do what we do because we are who we are. And if you are in Christ, this is what we have been created to be. And this is what we've been created to do. We want to do these things, and we are who we are, because God is good and gracious to save us, because he has sanctified us, set us apart to himself, that he is sanctifying us, making us and molding us more into the image of Christ. And that one day our hope, our blessed hope, our living hope, is that he will sanctify us. And sin will be no more. So as it relates to our salvation, we have been consecrated to him. And we are being consecrated to him. And one day we will fully be consecrated to him. Holy as he is holy. Set apart just as he himself is set apart. 
And so it's not just, are you doing these things? The question remains, is that your identity? Is he your Lord and Savior? Is this your life? Not just your behavior. Is this who you are? Are these the clothes that you wear? So that it no longer says liar or thief or slanderer or rage monster, right? But those clothes have been shed off. And now you don new clothes, bright, shining, clean clothes that no longer have the stink of death on them and emblazoned across the chest is Christ. That's what he has made us to be. And if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, don't walk away this weekend without committing your life to him without trusting in him for salvation. We have a debt to pay because of our sin, and we are incapable of paying it on our own. We desperately need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is our life and our salvation. And by trusting in him, the Bible tells us that he will wipe away every offense. He takes care of all of our guilt. He takes care of all of our shame. It's nailed to the cross. But there's a whole other side to it as well. He doesn't just take care of the guilt. He takes care of the problem, which is our hearts, and gives us a new heart and a new life in him so that what I once was is no more. Now I'm his and I live for him and I'll die for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And my hope is that no one would leave here this weekend without understanding and trusting that hope. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a wonderful weekend. And it's so good to spend a concentrated time in a passage of Scripture like we've had. And I pray, God, that you would be good and gracious to let the word that was taught remain with us in our hearts and our minds, that your spirit would bring a godly conviction where that's necessary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.